This season of What She Did Next is brought to you by Women's Agenda, a daily news publication for women. So then that penny dropped of if I were a founder and wanted to go for funding, is there anyone who looks like me on the other side? And so I think you have to look at it from both sides. You can't just say, oh, there there aren't enough female founders and we need to grow the pipeline. There also needs to be female investors on the other side. Welcome to this week's episode of What She Did Next. I'm your host, Jackie Uwe, and I also produce the show. In this series, we talk to women across different industries about a big career or life change they made, how it came about, and where it took them next. We often hear about the gender pay gap, but what about the gender investment gap, which shows a massive disparity in the funding that goes to female-led startups versus those led by men? My guest today is Soleil Baliapin, and she's an investor in the tech space, with a particular focus on startups that are bringing about positive change. She's also a champion of female founders and hopes to inspire more women to start their own companies and get the backing they need to bring their big ideas to the world. Soleil decided to become an investor after observing the lack of women on the funding side, particularly women of colour, and realising that having more female investors would ultimately lead to more funding for female founders. It was a whole new world for Soleil, who spent the first 10 years of her career in the insurance industry, starting out as an actuary for a big global firm. I spoke to Soleil about making the leap from corporate life to the startup world, what she's learned from being one of the few women at the investor table, her role as a Choose Maths ambassador to encourage more young women into STEM careers, and a new documentary series she's involved in called Women's Work, an initiative of Sydney Women's Fund, which aims to get more women thinking about their financial future. I have to admit, the world of startups and investing was new ground for me too, but it was absolutely fascinating to hear about. So I'm very pleased to bring you this conversation with Soleil Valiapin. So Soleil, I'm very curious to learn more about your work in the startup world, but can you start by telling us a bit about your background and what life as a kid looked like for you? Sure. I actually was born in New Zealand and my parents migrated there um, from South India in the mid 80s because there was a shortage shortage of doctors. So that's where they, um, that's the reason for them going over to New Zealand and I lived there until I was about seven. It was quite an idyllic childhood in that we grew up in lots of different places, uh, especially in the country. So I remember we had a lot of cows in the backyard or <laughs> and also chickens. <laughs> and I moved to Australia when I was about seven um, and then to Sydney when I was uh, 12. So very much okay. identify myself as a Sydney cider because that was, I guess, my formative high school, university, and working working life has been in Sydney. Right, and I read that when you were younger, you wanted to be a whole lot of things that aren't maths related, from artist to tennis player <laughs> to lawyer, graphic designer. So, how did you end up becoming interested in maths? Yeah, uh, yeah. As a kid, I was a very academic. Um, studious child and it was very self-motivated. Um, no one really pushed it on me at all. It was something inside me that I always wanted. To, whatever I did, I wanted to do it 110%. And so whether that was in studies or tennis or swimming or music 
or art. Yeah, I, I was I was that kid who did a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> and so at what point yeah, did the maths become an interest for you? The maths, I, I guess I was always a, a interested in maths, but it was actually maybe year nine, ten. That was the turning point for me where it just started becoming a little bit harder and more complex and much more interesting. Um, and then year 11 and 12, I really um, looked into it more and really applied myself. And I just, I just really enjoyed the problem solving and how you could come at a problem from a different point of view or different angles. There wasn't just sometimes there just wasn't one way to solve solve the math problems, which uh, I just thought there was a sort of elegance about it. And I'm not sure if many people would say put elegance and maths together, but <laughs> <laughs> as a teenager, that sort of that really sung to me, I suppose. And then you went on to study a Bachelor of Commerce at uni. So what was that experience like and where did you see your career heading at that point? I'll be honest in that I didn't know what I was going to do at university. And I think it's, I think it now I reflect on it at 17, 18. How do we ask teenagers at that age to pick, pick their career and what they want to do and what they're going to do? So, uh, I think at the beginning of year 11, I was like, Oh, I'd really like to study law. And then, um, as you'd go to careers fairs and university open days, you'd start to collect all the brochures and look through a lot more things. And we also used to have um, some old girls come to the school and present about what they did and what they studied. And actually, it was my mother who suggested actuarial studies and a few other people did too. And she said, oh, maybe you should look at this. Like, you really like maths. There's also a finance and business element to it. And I was quite fortunate in that I also received a scholarship to study at the University of New South Wales. So it was a co-op scholarship. So not only was I fortunate enough to receive some money whilst I was studying, but more importantly, I'd be given opportunities for work experience at three different places whilst I was studying. So I thought that was okay. that would be hugely beneficial because it, it would give me a little bit more insight whilst I was studying. So I was fortunate to receive that scholarship in the actuarial studies school so that also helped in my decision when I guess someone's paying you to go to university. Say okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good incentive. Um, and then you did start out working as an actuary in the insurance industry. And I have to admit, I didn't know exactly what that was, <laughs> but I like the description on your blog about it being a ninja at assessing risk. So for those of us who are perhaps less familiar with what an actuary does, can you paint a bit of a picture or describe what a typical workday looked like for you? Yeah, sure. I guess the profession, you could broadly say, manages and assesses risk and uncertainty, and that's predominantly done using financial models um, and analysis. And actually, there's a lot of judgment involved too, but there's an incredible amount of maths as well. Uh, and I guess typically that's in used in insurance industries, but it's also can be applied to many other financial industries and also increasingly starting to go into the not-for-profit not as well. So it's okay. basically anywhere you could use numbers to analyse risk and uncertainty. And yeah, I guess the best way to put it is you, you become quite the ninja at assessing risk <laughs> and <laughs> making, making a call on based on certain numbers and analysis. 
And I mean, you did a good long stint in the insurance industry. You were there for the first 10 years of your career. So what did you enjoy about it? And are there any highlights that you can recall? Yeah, um, it was a great introduction into, well, uh, so I started working whilst I was at university doing my placements. So that was a great, great way to see what corporate life was like and also what I was getting into after university too in that I'll admit that I didn't really know what an actuary did before before studying it so it was great that I could get that insight whilst I was studying and nothing nothing beats practical experience but I was amazed at um just how much how many spreadsheets <laughs> you would look at <laughs> <laughs> the analysis, the models, the different software, and I was at a time when um, coding coding's always been an important part of um, actuarial, especially in the traditional traditional roles. But um, just how much coding was involved as well. Um, you could just apply your maths in so many different ways. And then what I really, really enjoyed was when you would explain your results to non-actuaries and you'd have to find ways for that analysis to really stand out. And from that, you had to really understand how people consume information. And some Mm -hmm. people like a lot of detail, other people are more visual. So you had to adapt and understand what was the best way for someone to understand what you were doing and then more importantly, take on that advice. Interesting. Okay. But then there did come a point when you started to think about what else could be out there for you. So what prompted that thinking and what were some of the options that you were considering? So that actually came quite early in my career, I would say. So um, so during university, I did three placements and that ended up being about a year and a half of work experience. And then I worked as a graduate at a commercial insurance firm for four years. So I did both pricing and reserving. And then at the end of the four years, um, there was actually a role for a strategic strategic assistant or chief of staff role to the CEO. And it was still within the same company. And I thought, oh, maybe I'll just maybe I'll just a- apply for that. And actually I was still studying for my professional qualification at the same time. And I thought, oh, um, should I stay in the more traditional roles or should I make this this leap? And then I just thought, you know what, I'll just apply. Let's see, let's see what happens. Um and then I got I got the role. <laughs> right. I got the role. I thought, oh okay, I'm gonna be reporting to the CEO where before it was I think I was uh the term was maybe N minus six or like I was quite <laughs> quite below right. the layers, but now I was reporting <laughs> to the CEO, um, doing a little bit of absolutely everything. Um, Also working quite closely with the management team and also at night studying towards my professional qualifications. Um, So I had one or two exams left when I was working, but that was, I guess, the, the start of seeing that there are different ways to apply my skill set in a different way or not so traditional role. Um, right. And I had the safety in that it was still the same company, so I didn't need to learn a whole lot of new things. But it was still quite the leap, right. <laughs> reporting to the CEO, a whole lot of different things 
understanding about operations and HR and IT. It wasn't so narrow anymore. And that's what I really loved, how diverse it was. And it was just very intellectually stimulating. And then didn't you start to think about doing an MBA potentially, or I think you were maybe thinking about an overseas move? Yeah. So I was in the like the strategic assistant role for a couple of years, and then I moved into global corporate underwriting, which um, was in a, a different department of the company. And I did that for a couple of years. And then during that time, there was there was the opportunity to potentially go and do a stint in London. Um, I was also, I went when I was a strategic assistant, I actually qualified as an actuary during that time. And I was like, oh, what do I do with all my free time? Should I, should I study again? <laughs> should, I do an, should I do an MBA? Um, and then there was this other option where a few of my friends were starting startups and their own companies and just we're all still relatively young and we thought, well, now's the time to start something or do something different. And I was chatting to one friend who I actually went to university with and he said, hey, I'm doing this thing. And we were just chatting over over a drink. And then halfway through the conversation, he said, actually, I'm, I'm looking for someone to help me on the finance side as we're building out this company. Um, would you Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, actually, I would be interested. And it was just a yeah, I was expressing to him how I'm not sure what I want to do next. Like, do I do an MBA? Do I um, do I go to London? Yeah, and as we were, it just sort of came out organically. It was it was really quite interesting. So, yeah, made the made the jump. Left left the corporate world to work for my friend in a startup. Right, and I believe that was a space tech company, right? So. I mean, what were you doing exactly and did you what did you know about robotics and space? So there were actually I was actually working at another company. The space tech company oh, okay. was I was doing some advisory work for. Um so I had a few friends doing startups, so I was helping a few friends. <laughs> <laughs> but the one that I was working, I guess, more full time on was in, in telco infrastructure and that was um they kept that quiet for a while and I was happy to keep it quiet too because that meant that we could just get on and do a whole lot of work. But um, but in terms of the the robotics company, um, yes, that's true. I didn't I didn't know much about robotics <laughs> or about <laughs> space, um, but I could understand the business the business side of things. And from working at corporate, not that a startup is exactly the same, but you under um, I understood I guess the kind of uh, segments that you needed and operations that were required. But most importantly, at the beginning of a startup, I would say the culture is probably the most important and the principles that you're going to build that company on so that when it becomes a big company, it's closer to what you had in mind principles-wise and culture-wise. Um, I guess right. people will come and go, but I think it's really important that your your vision is really thought out at the beginning. So how did those roles then lead you to delve into the investor side of things? So whilst I was working at the telco place full-time, uh, we were setting up the financial systems and the reporting. We had a lot of shareholders and board members who 
were board members of ASX companies. So they were quite used to the level of, I guess, financial reporting. We wanted to, we really wanted to step up and be be treated as grown-ups. Right. <laughs> so I actually just started doing some research and I thought, okay, well, a company at our stage, what would the reporting look like? And then I just thought, well, why don't I just go to some angel investing syndicate events and just see uh, see companies pitch and also just talk to other investors who invest in early stage, what they look for and what they do. And so I started, I, I just started going to some events and watching some pitches and then I just thought, hey, that's interesting. And then um, often in these syndicates, they would form they would form due diligence groups where they would look at companies and I guess they would break up the due diligence into different sections and people would have a look at it and then then you can individually decide if you'd like to invest or not. And so I got involved in a, a few of those um, mm. and that was super, super interesting. And actually, uh, I guess my MBA money just started, I started writing checks into some of these startups <laughs> that I was doing due diligence in. And, and I also wrote a check for the space startup too at the, at, at a similar time. So I just found it really interesting. And it was again, a really interesting way to use my skill set of assessing risk. And I guess, uh, the height of risk is an early stage startup where so many mm. of them, so many of them failed. And the other thing is that, um, there isn't often there isn't a lot of data or financial information on the company itself because it's so, so nascent. But you can use that analysis and skill set into other ways by looking at the market and the competition and the industry right. and talking. But what I really enjoyed was just talking to the founders and just learning, learning about their industry and learning about the company. Um, it, it was just really – I just found everything about it really, really fascinating. And uh, I think I was uh, reading reading a tweet by a venture capitalist who said, if you're not learning from every founder conversation you have, then you're not doing you're not doing your job right as an investor. Like you should constantly be learning. And so I just yeah. really enjoyed that part. Um, but what was really helpful was that I was able to gain that information of how to set up the systems and the processes and what we should think of at the startup too. So it was really good in that it fed that way. Um, mm. I was at the startup for about four or no. Three, three years. And then as I was doing more and more angel investing, I wanted to do that more full time and make that make that more of a, uh, a career. And I suppose the catalyst of that too was often when I would go to these angel syndicate meetings, I would often be the only woman. I would often be one of the youngest people and I would um, very often be one of the only only person of color and especially woman of color. So it was, it was quite interesting in that there was quite a, uh, I felt like quite the minority. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to ask you more about that, but, um, but yeah, before we get onto that side, I know you've also talked about the importance of investing in, in startups that bring about positive change. So what were some of the early areas that you ventured into? And, and I guess, what are you looking for when you invest in a company? So when I was starting looking at uh, angel investing in due diligence, I uh, met a friend who was also on this journey too, but he was um, 
CEO of a clean tech accelerator, and he mentioned, hey, I'm going to create an angel group in the clean tech space. And I thought that was really interesting. And also the fact that it was just one industry, um, I could hone my investing skills and I could just concentrate on a sector like clean tech instead of having to learn about so many different different sectors and i could really see that there was was like the beginning of the of the growth into this into this period with um technology constantly changing a lot of innovation in the space um especially in australia and i just found it the more i would speak to founders in the space i was like oh this is really really interesting mm. can you give some examples yeah there was companies on electric vehicle charging so the software behind that a remote solar panel for remote communities sometimes we would see some circular economy type startups as well so yeah taking like say food waste moving from food waste to fertilizer or pet food or yeah Mm, or even, I don't know if you caught Australian story the other week, but they, they were focused exactly on that, like the work being done in the science and engineering space about converting waste into, well, in this case, it was sort of ceramics and tiles that you'd use in, in furnishing homes and things like that. Like it's pretty amazing some of the innovations that are coming out. But yeah, I guess getting the funding for them is not always so easy, <laughs> which mm. is where people like you come in. But yeah, I like this idea of um, investment as positive change because I think, you know, we, we don't always think about using, using money for good in that way. Obviously, there's philanthropy and you can donate to various things, but actually investing to get these technologies out there is just as critical. Yes, yes, definitely. And so coming back to, you did say that one of the, when you went to these angel investor groups, you'd noticed you were one of the few women there and women of colour and that one of the reasons that you sort of decided to move into that area more was because there weren't enough women on the investing side. So firstly, why is it important to have more women at the investor table? What I did find when sometimes I would go to these events where I would have older men come up to me and ask me if I was a founder or and how much money I needed, and at first I thought, oh, that's a bit funny, but it it, it happened <laughs> it happened more than once. Oh and really? That, yeah, and so then that that penny dropped of, oh, I think I think this is a problem. This is <laughs> this is a problem. And if I were a founder and wanted to go for funding, is there anyone who looks like me on the other side? And so I could I could see and feel that having more women on the investing side and allocating capital will potentially change where that capital is allocated and also to whom that capital is allocated. And Mm. you can't really, um, I think you have to look at it from both sides. You can't just say, oh, there, there aren't enough female founders and we need to grow the pipeline. There also needs to be female investors on the other side. Mm. I actually read this really interesting opinion piece by Serena Williams, who I didn't know as well as being a tennis legend. She's also a startup investor. She is. And she basically said exactly the same thing that, you know, um, 
what did she say? I think, well, she was talking particularly about the struggles of black female founders in raising startup capital. But she was saying, you know, because investors tend to back people who look like them, um, that I guess wealthy white men tend to have the upper hand <laughs> from the outset. So, uh, yeah, I think this idea of having um, more women and women of colour actually at the table for these pitch meetings and possibly having uh, more of an understanding or an affinity <laughs> with the person on the other side, that's got to make a big difference. Yeah, and it's not to say that I will only invest in in women of colour. It's more if that if that founder feels more comfortable or confident coming out and asking for funding, then that could open up more doors. And, oh, yeah, I've just been astounded where some people will email me or message me out of the blue and I wonder if I wasn't on the scene whether they would have had the confidence to do that. Mm. Well, we definitely, I mean, we hear a lot about the gender pay gap in Australia, but the figures around the the so-called gender investment gap are pretty startling. I mean, can you talk a bit about those figures? Yeah, there's, um, the US has been analysing this for, for quite a few years and it's hovered around, uh, it's under under five percent or two to three percent, and in Australia, it that that analysis is not so strong yet, or like the anal- the analysis hasn't been done to the extent as the US, but it's starting to, um, and there have been some figures that showing also similar uh, about five percent as well. Um, so there's right. still a lot of a lot of scope <laughs> to to improve. Yeah. And I think it's really important that it's not a zero-sum game of just because um, increasing capital allocation to women does not mean that it is not being given to men. It's uh, it's about thinking about growing the pie. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, so basically at the moment, though, only around 5% of venture capital funding in Australia would be going to all female-led teams. And yet, isn't it the case that that female-led startups do better than men? I mean, I read a few articles talking about the data showing that, yeah, in terms of ROI, um, I think it said women-led startups generate almost twice as much return on investment as their male counterparts. Have you come across that? Yes, I don't have the, the figure, but there has been, I think it's a BCG figure, uh, and it's based on the states. I haven't seen that analysis done in done in Australia, but maybe I should, maybe I should, maybe I should do it. Look, I guess there are some great success stories though, that we can look to now of female-led startups that have done astronomically well. Um, I mean, that's some, some that came to mind was Canva, you know, by Melanie Perkins here in Australia and, and Bumble over in the US. Hopefully that does continue to inspire more female founders. But I guess as someone on the investor side who is meeting with lots of founders, as you've said, what have you noticed around, you know, what it takes to be successful? Is there any advice you could offer to to women who may have a big idea they're wanting to bring to life? Mm, just the things that I'm starting to look in, in founders are, are definitely resilience um, and whether they're iterative learners. Like we don't, as investors, we don't expect you to know everything, um, but to be able to learn and change when required and be self-aware. Um, but most importantly to the founders um, uh, and also uh, especially the female founders is we need your ideas and your vitality and 
your inspiration and yes and your voice i think that's most important well it's now about 4 years since you left your job in the insurance industry to make the leap to the startup world so what would you say are some of the biggest lessons you've learned or perhaps some of the biggest obstacles you've had to overcome in terms of establishing yourself in a new sector so it was a little bit of a shock working for the startup <laughs> to go from, you know, being an employee of, say, 1,000 thousand plus company to I think I was employee number six or seven. So, right. <laughs> so it, was, it was rather small and uh, you didn't really have the departments that you used to. So there was no legal department I could go to or the, um, the risk team or the ops team or the IT team. It was like, okay, well here's your monitor and your keyboard and you need to, you need to set it up. I was like, okay. And then uh, I think I was looking at some contracts and asking, oh, do we, do we send this to lawyers? And they're like, no, you've got to do a really good, you've got to be the lawyer first. I was like, oh, okay, right. cool. <laughs> I'll have a look at this contract in more detail. Of course, there were contracts that you would send to, send to lawyers, but there's a lot in that you had many, many hats, which I actually really enjoyed. And also you just had to back yourself and make decisions. There was a lot more autonomy, um, but also there was a, a, a lot more risk too. So you had to um, be quite measured with with how you made decisions and the actions you took. So if you if you like to be thrown in the deep end, then yes. <laughs> <laughs> a new challenge. Um, and I mean, we talked about earlier what a typical workday look like for you as an actuary. What does a typical workday look like for you now? Uh, currently, as an investor, it would be, oh, it varies. Uh, meetings are a mix of over Zoom and also in person. Um, due diligence, a lot of due diligence, uh, looking at pitch decks and Excel spreadsheets and talking to other investors. And um, actually, I've been doing a lot of research in my spare time of listening to podcasts and reading books. Um, it's it's one of those I didn't realize how much how much study is still involved. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I guess that's what keeps it interesting as you said you're researching and learning about all sorts of different sectors, I guess, and and individuals and companies like it must as someone with a curious mind it must keep you very uh stimulated, fulfilled. Yes, yes, very much so. I'm really enjoying that um yeah, learning learning new things and how I can apply it and how I can, I guess, teach others who are also looking looking to learn the similar things. And I mean, I did want to ask. I imagine managing what must be quite big amounts of money, whether it's your own or other people's, must have its stressful moments. I mean, how do you maintain a balance and and keep all of that in perspective? I've been. I've had a a daily meditation and yoga practice for a, a couple of years. And that really right. helps to start my day, uh, keep me really grounded for the rest of the day. And also it's helped in discovering more about myself and how I would like to live with more intention and purpose in the world and also how I interact and engage with other people. And so I hope that I bring those qualities when I meet with all people, especially mm. founders, because um, it's so it's so scary being a founder. You're putting your your life and energy into this 
this company and business and it just melds into everything, your personal, your <laughs> there's no real mm. split. And so to bring that, um, I suppose, care and and support for them to be able to truly achieve what's what they really are aiming for is I guess a real privilege Mm. and I mean how does it feel you've been doing this for a while now have you seen some success stories come out of the companies or startups that you've been supporting and investing in yeah, you see the full gamut of it's it's truly a roller coaster. I've had um, some of my personal co- uh, the companies that I've personally invested in, where you know they've won these huge contracts, which is just amazing. Um, but then sometimes in the lead up to signing that contract, they're teetering on potentially bankruptcy or like. Um, Maybe it's like, oh, not sure if the runway. So it's just this whole gamut of emotions, and um, and it's interesting whenever you see something in the in the media about how they're an overnight success. It seems like that they're an overnight success. It's never an overnight mm. success. You really get no, to I'm see. Sure. You can really get to see <laughs> the ins and outs of what has happened. Yeah. And I know you're passionate about encouraging more young people, particularly young women, into STEM careers, and you were featured in a Choose Maths campaign by AMSI, the Australian Mathematical Sciences Institute, as one of their ambassadors. Do you think we're starting to see more movement in this area? Like, have you noticed more women, more young women entering these types of roles during your career? Yeah, I have. And also, I think what was um, what's really important is I've seen the the rhetoric and the language around this has changed in that it's, um, yeah, where uh, the reason why I was part of the campaign was that they were, it was a nationwide campaign to address high school students. So there's no real point in targeting people, I suppose, uh, after university, whereas if you can go as early as possible and then just plant that seed in their mind what they choose mm. to do with it is another thing, but it's just about, I feel like it's about awareness mm. and just showing that there are different. So it wasn't just me as an ambassador. There were many, many ambassadors and so many different roles to show that you can have a, there's a really diverse, uh, diverse career options out there for you, but to definitely choose something that aligns with what you want to do and, um, uh, I hate to use the word passion, but <laughs> but what interests you? What would what would be of interest to you? Mm. Well, I think even your own career journey has shown you know the many different ways you can use the skills that you learnt with your focus on actuarial studies and and finance. Yeah, I think that's really important that it's not static as well. It can it mm. will move, and uh, I think if I was at that age, I would want to know that that what you choose at the age of 17 or 18 is not going to yeah if you told me I'd be a tech investor when I was at university I would have laughed (laughs) (laughs) and yet here you are (laughs) and yeah and who knows where my my career will take me but this is I'm really enjoying it for now Mm. and I was also interested to see that you're part of a new documentary series uh, by the Sydney Women's Fund which is looking at women's financial literacy and money management um, and you feature alongside some pretty big names, including Annabelle Crabb, Lucy Turnbull, Tracy Spicer, Taria Pitt. Can you share a bit about that and what the aim of that project is? 
Yeah, so it was. Um, it's a four-part web series documentary commissioned by Sydney Women's Fund, and it's produced and directed by Melissa Chan and Ben Strom. And so I know I know those two quite well. And uh, actually, my uh, although I am in it briefly, um, I've actually been more involved behind the scenes in that I was doing a lot of the data analysis and creating the graphs and fact-checking the statistics. So that was, that's been it's been a great project, but it's also been quite disturbing um, to read mm. the numbers and understand, uh, yeah, understand women's financial vulnerability through the life's um, life cycle of a woman from early childhood to early in their career to caring to retirement. Um, I, f- I can share a few statistics. One is that fifty percent of women in Sydney earn thirty four thousand dollars or less. Um, the Uh other one that I found quite disturbing is that the fastest growing cohort of homelessness in homelessness in Australia is a woman aged 55 and above. Mm, Yeah, that's pretty striking, isn't it? Um, well, we can definitely share the links to that documentary series is going to be online. So we'll include the links for that in the show notes. And so I guess what's next for you in your career? <laughs> or what's next for you in 2021? What's next for me in 2021? I've been um, thinking more about how to have a dual track career, both in the, I guess, um, continue my tech investing, but also where I can use my skills and services in the not-for-profit or for-purpose. So um, the Women's Work documentary was uh, like, yeah, I loved contributing in that way, in that I was able to use my skill set in a documentary and theme that I care a lot about and I really hope a lot of people watch this documentary as – an awareness of the the issue and that it will stimulate these conversations that we need to have to help drive some change, um, mm-hmm. both at a policy level and also how we generally make decisions. So we're all about women making brave choices on this podcast and you've certainly taken some big leaps in your life and career. What would you say has been your bravest moment and how did you find the courage to go for it? Mm, the bravest moment? I would say quite early when I was at the insurance company and I stepped out of the traditional actuarial role to go and work for the CEO. That was the first the first step of many steps that I've made in my career. Um, and that was at the time, that was, that was the scariest, but I look back now and I just kind of giggle that it wasn't wasn't that bad, (laughs) but at the time it felt like, oh, wow, this is a, this is a huge deal, but it's, but it's not. (laughs) And what do you think pushed you forward? Like what gave you that courage? I just thought, well, I can just, like, I still have my job. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> it, it was it was just more just just trying something different and they were looking for someone internal and even if I didn't get it it would have been great great feedback on what I could what are the areas that I could fill the gaps in of mm. to potentially get a role like that it was it was just about trying yeah if you if you don't try then you don't know <laughs> 
Exactly. Um, and I think a lot of us find inspiration from other women too. Who are some of the women that you look to and who inspire you? Mm. First is my mother. I think it was very brave of her to migrate to a, a different country or two different countries, I suppose. Um, she didn't have the opportunity to go to university, but yet she invested a lot of time in her own education to be able to work and also to bring up um, three children who are very highly educated and give back to society. So um, I think there's a, a lot to be said about her. And also my friend Melissa, who is, um, as I mentioned, one of the producers of the Women's Fund documentary. She's also a fellow tech investor and just she also has a, a journalism background and she can also work spreadsheets. So I'm amazed at how she is both skilled at words and numbers and <laughs> I think it's phenomenal the work she's done on this documentary and um, just her her passion and how how much integrity she lives her life with. And if there's someone listening out there thinking perhaps they'd love to make a big leap in their life or career, do you have any final tips for them? Yeah, there's this quote that I really love. Um, uh, I, I'm not sure who said it, but it it really really resonated with me, uh, leap and the net will appear. Beautiful. Yeah, I think it's having, it is that literal leap of faith and <laughs> backing yourself. Yeah, I understand like there are there are always, um, you can't do that all the time, but you can make tiny little micro steps to then work your way up to that big, big leap that you really want to make. And also mm. just to just to remember to ask for help. I think people people generally want to help other people. Um, yeah. And the the worst that can happen is that they say no. <laughs> I've had plenty of exactly. no's in my we career. Get, we so get so scared of that little word, though, don't we? <laughs> but it's. I, I think you'd be surprised, and as you start to build that that muscle, it's really a muscle of asking mm. and and leaping. Who knows what it will bring about. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today, Soleil. Thank you, Jackie. That was tech investor Soleil Baliarpin, who you can find via her blog at soleilbaliarpin.medium.com. We'll put the details in our show notes. If you're enjoying these conversations, it would mean a lot if you could help spread the word. Tell a friend about us, share a link, or leave a nice rating and review. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to get in touch. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at What She Did Next Podcast. What She Did Next is produced and hosted by me, Jackie Uwe, and we are proud to be a part of the Women's Agenda Podcast Network. Thanks for listening.